Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, you can find the passage on page 57. 57. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 21. Would you please rise in honor of this reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like a stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, 
for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word. You have spoken it. You incarnated it through your son, Jesus Christ. And through the apostles and prophets, you wrote it down into the scriptures, which we hold before us. We thank you for how your word is able to instruct us in the ways we should go. That by the power of your spirit, you help us conform our lives that we would be like your son, Jesus Christ, on this earth. And so, Father, we pray that as we hear your word preached this morning, as we study your word together, may you use it to shape not only our minds and our hearts, but even how we act as well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Fall 1873. Horatio Spafford stood at the dock. He saw his wife, four daughters, walk up the ramp to the ship, the Ville du Havre. Horatio Spafford was sending his family ahead to the UK so that they could hear their friend D.L. Moody preach at a crusade. Unfortunately, Horatio Spafford was unable to join them because he had some business matters that came up. And so he stood there at the dock, waving his family goodbye, expecting in a few weeks or so, they would be reunited in the United Kingdom. That journey across the Atlantic began as any normal journey. The sea was calm. The ship was going at the right clip until the early morning of November 22nd. At 2 o'clock in the morning, when Mrs. Spafford awoke to sounds of cries and alarm because a British ship, the Lochern, had just hit the Ville du Havre. And before she was able to do anything, she saw three of her daughters swept out into the sea as she continued to clutch one of them in her arms and hoping to continue to hold her. But it wasn't too long afterwards before the sea also took that daughter as well. And Mrs. Spafford went unconscious and awoke on the ship Lockhearn to learn that the sea had taken four of her daughters. When she arrived at the UK, she sent a telegram to her husband Horatio Spafford saying, save alone. Oftentimes we think being a believer, after placing our faith in Christ, the walk with the Lord is going to be easy. We think that because we have such excitement knowing that our sins have been forgiven, they be justified before the Lord, that life now should be easy. And when challenges arise, it causes us to doubt and wonder if we can actually trust the Lord. 
we come to faith and we realize we really have to reorient our lives. When we share with our friends and family that we've become a Christian, we expect them to be equally as excited. But when their expressions express more bewilderment and wondering, why would you place your faith in the God of the Bible? It makes little sense. Or how being a Christian also limits your dating pool from everyone to only those who place their faith in Christ. Or even how you're supposed to treat other people. And now you're expected to love people regardless of who they might be. Socially awkward, quiet, rambunctious, annoying, all the same. You're supposed to love them. And even how God calls us to be generous with what we own because we learn that they are not our stuff. It is not our own. But we're supposed to be stewards. That God turns everything on its head. Israel, as they left Egypt, thought, we are delivered. We are on our way to the promised land. The challenges are behind us. Blessings are ahead of us. Until they reach the coast of the Red Sea and they discover that the Egyptians are still behind them. And the Red Sea is still ahead of them. And they wonder, how come following God, being delivered, is not going to be simple? Why has God put us in this particular predicament? where we are stuck, we are trapped, where is God? And of course, we learn that God provides a way through the Red Sea, that they cross the Red Sea, and the sea swallows up the Egyptians. And what does Moses teach Israel afterwards to commemorate the event? It's interesting, he doesn't say, everyone, Take a rock, put it in your pocket, take it home, put it in your tent, and every time you look at the rock, remember the crossing of the Red Sea. Or take a pile of sand with you so you can remember the crossing of the Red Sea. Or take some of the water. No, he teaches them a song. Now you've got to wonder, why did Moses teach Israel a song? It's because for some reason, a song resonates with our souls and with our minds, and that we remember events. Songs teach us fundamentals. It taught me my ABCs. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? And that we remember those fundamentals. Or even as we remember songs, it brings us back to moments, to experiences, that even after my dad has passed away, every time I hear the words, of amazing grace, I think of his service. And if you read this week's Food for Thought that Alex wrote, he also talks about how even though a person experiences a stroke and is able only to say yes, no, or bleep, he's still able to sing songs that he remembered from his youth. That there is something inside of us that remembers music, that remembers song that shapes and changes us in a special way. And so if songs are so critical and songs are so important, then what songs should we be taught to sing? What is the music that should tune our hearts and our minds to continue to trust God? In this morning's text from Exodus chapter 15, we see Moses teaching this song. Not only Moses, but also Miriam. 
We see Moses teaching this song in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. If you have your Bibles there, please turn there with me if they're not open already. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. We see Moses instructing the people of Israel a song. Moses writes, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And not only did Moses teach this song, but Miriam, his sister, taught it as well. We see this in verse 20. If you look down with me at verse 20, it says this, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with her tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So we see that Moses teaches a song. But what do we sing about? What should be the topics, the ideas that inform our tunes, that inform our melodies and our harmonies? What are the topics that shape our songs? And in this text, we see three things to sing about. Three ideas that should inform our songs. And after each point, I'll give you a hymn or song to consider for meditation, for memorization, that Alex also encouraged us to do in the Food for Thought as well. So first point, what do we actually sing about? Sing about God's uniqueness so that you can trust him. Sing about the fact that God is set apart, that he's different, that he's special, that he's unique. That you sing about how God is distinct. Sing about God's uniqueness so that you can continue to trust him. And how is God unique? God uniquely reveals himself to us. That he shows himself in a very special way to each and every one of us. God reveals himself uniquely to Moses and to Israel. We see this in verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Did you notice in this verse how many times my is repeated? My strength, my song, my salvation, my God, my Father's God. That there seems to be a personal connection between Moses and Israel and God. And that God is not just a God who is out there, but a God who is personal to us. A God that we can relate to, that reveals himself to us specially. Just as God revealed himself to Moses through a burning bush. And how God revealed himself to Israel through their deliverance. And notice that in verse 2, it says, my God, in contrast to my father's God. That even though this was the God of Israel's ancestors, because of this experience, it's no longer the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but is now Israel's God. And how many of us who grew up in the church think about how we inherit our faith from our families? But that can only take you so far. 
that we actually need to have a personal relationship with God. And God reveals himself uniquely to each one of us. If you were to have everyone in this congregation share their testimony, yes, there are certain elements that would be the same. There's a realization of the fact that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior and how you place your faith in Christ. But all the circumstances that bring you to that point would be different. Some of you may be asking yourselves these existential questions that led you to faith in God. Some of you may have experienced a broken relationship that you found fulfilled in Christ. Others of you may have struggled with anxiety, and that led you to believing in the gospel. That each one of your stories is uniquely written and different, whether you came from a family of unbelievers or a family of Christians. That every story is different. And God uniquely reveals himself to us. But not only does God uniquely reveal himself to us, but God uniquely works. That his works are distinct, that they are different, that they are special. And we see this in verse 11. Because in verse 11, God's work demonstrates his superiority over all other powers. Verse 11 says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Israel had the opportunity to see God demonstrate his superiority through the, through the plagues. That God, by turning the Nile blood red, God sending the frogs, the locusts, demonstrated that the Egyptian gods and the gods that they worshipped paled in power in comparison to Yahweh, the Lord. But also we see God's works demonstrate his superiority even over our lives. That we see the futility of what we do, and that futility leads us to see the greatness of God. For students, you strive so hard to be at the top 10% of your class before graduation. And then you enter college, and you realize everyone else is also in the 10%. For those of you who work, you desire that promotion, that corner office, and you get to that corner office, and then you realize there's another corner office on the 11th floor, and I need to get another promotion. And all this striving, as we begin to meet these goals, we fi find that they are pale, empty, and poor. That they're unable to provide us the significance that we seek. And we see that only God can. And that his work on the cross demonstrates superiority over our lives. So what is a song about God's uniqueness? So as I thought about God's holiness and distinctiveness, I thought of a song. I saw, thought of how great thou art. And so I'm not going to sing for you the first two verses uh, because there is good reason why I do not serve on a worship team. But I will read you the first two verses. It says this, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the world thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee how great thou art. How great thou art, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. So 
Sing about God's uniqueness. Sing about his distinctiveness. But what else do we sing about? We sing about God's deliverance as well. That we sing about God's deliverance so that we can continue to trust him. We sing about his saving power, his saving grace, his saving acts so that we continue to trust him. You see, God delivered Israel from its enemies. Uh, We see this in most of this song in Exodus chapter 15, verses 3 through 10, and also in verse 12, that God delivered Israel from Egypt and from the Egyptians. But I also want to bring us to, or bring our attention to a particular phrase, specifically in verse 6. If you look at verse 6, there's a phrase that is repeated, your right hand. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And then we see it again also in verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Why is there emphasis on God's right hand? Is his left not as good as his right? I'm sure both hands are equally powerful. But Moses mentions God's right hand because it is the hand connected with strength, with power, with might. It is the right hand that wields the sword and the sling. It is the hand which God wields to demonstrate that he is the warrior king, that he is the one who's able to deliver. And not only does God deliver Israel from the Egyptians, their past enemies, but God also looks toward the future that God will deliver Israel from its future enemies. We see this in verse 14. The people have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized inhabitants of Philistia. They're the chiefs of Edom, dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. As you read these verses, you must be wondering, I don't remember Philistia being mentioned yet in Exodus, or Edom, or Moab, or Canaan. So why does Moses even mention these people? It's because if you read the Old Testament, you realize that these are enemies that Israel will face in the future. You remember Goliath? He was a Philistine. And you also have these enemies arising to oppose Israel, yet every time, God would deliver them. That God delivers Israel from its future enemies. And God also delivers us from our enemies as well. And the most important enemy that God delivered us from is sin. That God sent his son, the one who sat at his right hand, to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that his righteousness would be given to us. And that he rose from the grave to give us the promise of new life. That God intervened with his mighty hand, his son, to deliver us from sin. And then you have to wonder, but even though I've placed my faith in Christ, I still struggle with sin. I still commit sins against my family members, my spouse, my brothers, my sisters, my classmates, my neighbors. And it's true. 
that there's still a part of sin that affects our flesh. And Paul writes about this in his letters, that there is still the desire of the flesh in which we struggle against. Yet God provides us resources through his spirit to overcome it. But the struggle will continue until God takes us home or Christ returns. Because when Christ returns, he will deliver us from our flesh by giving us a body not like the ones that we inhabit now, but like the body that he has that is free from sin. So God delivers us from our enemies, both present and also future. And so what is the song about God's deliverance that I thought about as we continue in this text? I thought about the song, In Christ Alone. Now let me read to you two verses from this particular song. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. When we sing that song, when we hum it as we leave this service, we remember God's deliverance to reinforce our trust in him. So we talked about God's uniqueness, that we're supposed to sing about that. We sing about God's deliverance. What else are we supposed to sing about? We sing about God's plan. Sing about God's plan so that you can trust him. Sing about how God has ordained and arranged certain events so that we continue to trust him. And what is his plan? God plans to redeem his people. We see this in the first half of verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. We also see this idea repeated in the later half of verse 16. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by by whom you have purchased. This idea of redemption is the idea of purchasing something. Just as you redeem a coupon at the store in order to get something, God redeems us and pays the price for our sin. This idea of redemption is associated with the idea of a kinsman redeemer. Much like Boaz in the book of Ruth and how he redeems Ruth. But also think about how God redeems us as believers. That Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, paid the penalty that we deserve. That he redeemed us. And even in the Gospel of Mark, it talks about how Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. He paid for us. But not only does God plan to just redeem us and leave us here, God plans to bring people to his home. 
And we see this in a series of verses. So I want to point your attention first to, again, verse 13, later half. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. All right, hold that thought. Verse 17 through 18, it says this, You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. That it seems in these texts that God not only redeems Israel, but plans to bring Israel to where God dwells. Now, where does God dwell? Well, in the book of Exodus, we see that God's presence comes down at Mount Sinai in the form of a burning bush when he reveals himself to Moses. But Israel is also making a journey. They are going to Mount Sinai, where the presence of God will meet with them through clouds and lightning and thunder. And that is where God's presence is. That God is bringing the people where he dwells. And not only does God bring them to this mountain, but at this mountain, God gives them instructions to build a tabernacle, a tent, a place where God's presence will dwell. And that Israel will bring this tabernacle wherever they go so God's presence would be with them. And not only did God give them instruction to build that tabernacle so that his presence would be with them, but you also have this idea that it's foreshadowing another mountain. A mountain not like Mount Sinai, but a mountain in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Upon this mountain, the temple will be built by Solomon, where God's presence will also dwell that God plans to bring people to his dwelling place. And why is that? Because if you look back in the book of Genesis, God always intended man to dwell with him. But what prevented that was sin. And the whole Bible is a story about how God is bringing a people to himself. And God also plans to bring us as believers home as well. That the spirit who dwells in us is a foretaste, a down payment, an inheritance of a thing that projects and helps us anticipate our heavenly home. And that God will bring us home when we sleep in the ground or when he returns. That is the plan that we anticipate, that we expect, and that we hope for. And that even in the service of communion this Sunday, we anticipate having this meal with our Lord where God dwells. Now, a song to think about. I was thinking about this song, uh, The Lord is My Salvation. Now, I know this song is about Psalm 27. So it might not directly correlate to the Exodus. But there's a specific verse that I want to draw attention to. It's this one. It's the very last verse in this psalm. It says this, And when I reach my final day, he will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise. He will call me home. The Lord is my salvation. Sing about God's plan. 
that we can continue to trust him. So what are the things that we are to sing about? We sing about God's uniqueness, how he is distinct, how he's set apart. We sing about God's deliverance, how he has delivered us, redeemed us, saved us. We think about, sing about God's plan and how he plans to bring us one day home. And then we sing about these things. So when those times of trials come, when we face those difficulties, we would sing so that we continue to trust him. When Horatio Spafford received the telegram from his wife, saved alone, his heart was broken. And as he sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, they came to the spot where the ship his daughters sailed on, sank to the bottom of the ocean. And when he found that out, he went into his cabin. And in his grief, he penned a song, a hymn. It is well with my soul. Let me read you the first two verses. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. And may we, too, continue to sing that we trust in our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it reminds us that as believers, we will face trials, hardships, difficulties, things that would cause us to doubt you and perhaps even falter in our walk with you. When those moments come, we pray that your spirit would inspire us to remember the songs that we sing, songs of your uniqueness, songs of your deliverance, and songs of your plans, that we would continue to trust you even in those moments. And we ask these things in Christ's name.